KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power, welcoming the renowned Jack Quartet to San Diego for an evening of music titled Modern Medieval, with works by Caroline Shaw, Morton Feldman, and more. Monday, May 6th at The Loft at UC San Diego, artpower.ucsd.edu. One day in the right direction as San Diego's COVID case rate falls. But it's been coming down pretty steadily over the last couple of weeks, so that's that's been an improvement that we've seen. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Mark Sauer. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The presidential race is heating up, so are concerns about election threats. From potential cyber attacks to lack of opportunities for safe in-person voting uh, to uh, the president seeking to undermine the fairness and legitimacy of the election. A San Diego theater group presents songs of remembrance for those lost to COVID-19. And our summer music series features a longtime San Diego favorite, the Gray Boy All-Stars. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. A welcome bit of good news emerged from San Diego's latest update on COVID-19 cases. Daily numbers of positive cases Wednesday dropped below the state's watch list threshold. It's the first time we got below 100 cases per 100,000 residents since San Diego was placed on the watch list at the beginning of July. KPBS health reporter Taryn Mento explains what that drop means or doesn't mean for the prospects of easing restrictions in San Diego. And Taryn, welcome to the program. Thank you, Maureen. First of all, how much below that threshold did San Diego get on Wednesday? Right. So the case rate dropped to 94.1 new cases per 100,000 residents. The state, as you mentioned in your intro, wants to us to be at no more than 100 new cases per 100,000 residents. So just about six points below what we want. You know, but we've, we've seen the case rate number, you know, fluctuate up and down in the past. Um, so it will likely change day to day. But, you know, every, everyone's hoping these ups will still stay below that 100 per 100,000 threshold. And when was the last time we had a positive case number as low as this? We got on the watch list in early July. And so that means that in early July, we went above 100 per 100,000. Um, so it's been a, a while, we're talking five, six weeks here, that we've been consistently um, at above you know, above 100. And I think we've been you know, at 150, 154 um, cases per 100,000 residents before you know, um, later in July. But it's been coming down pretty steadily over the last couple of weeks. Um, so that's that's been an improvement that we've seen. 
But this is not the positivity rate, correct? This is the total number of people who test positive. So conceivably, the rate could be affected by the number of tests taking place. Right. The audience is probably hearing positivity rate, case rate, hospitalization, like so many rates that we keep hearing. So the case rate is the number of confirmed cases, confirmed positive results over a two-week period uh, that's that's divided for, for every 100,000 residents. And that's a simplified explanation of the calculation. And so the rate could be influenced by testing, sure. Um, but, you know, except for two or three days over the last month, um, you know, when we saw very low testing around 4,000 daily tests reported or very high testing around 16,000 daily test reporting, the range has really been around 5,600 to a bit over 9,000 daily tests reported with a handful of, you know, days above 10,000. Sorry if that was confusing for the audience to follow, but, you know, it's about a month ago, the county and state, you know, also did limit who could be tested. So it's limited to those who are very sick or, or at high risk, at least those they took priority, you know, meaning we are testing people who could be more likely to be positive. Our goal is to see uh, 67, about 6,700 um, tests a day. And lately, for the most part, we've been near or above that. Now, one day for San Diego to be below threshold numbers does not get us off the watch list, as I understand it. What would we have to do to to get off that list? So just to get off the watch list, you have to stay below the threshold for um, or at the threshold um, for three days. Now, this is a little bit complicated because we hear about, we heard about that reporting glitch. Um, the state may have not accurately reported all of the cases to the counties, and that just caused a whole bunch of confusion. Now, the county says that they've received all of those backdated case positives, um, and maybe there'll be a few trickling in here and there over the next couple of days. Um, and the state, I believe, says that everything should be kind of up to date as of the end of this week. So we still have to wait and see if we do maintain this this uh, below this threshold for the next couple of days, what will happen? Will the state allow us to get off the, the, the watch list? Um, so that's something we're still kind of a little unclear on. What daily positive test number do we have to stay below to stay below that threshold of 100 per 100,000 residents? So Dr. Wilma Wooten, the county's public health officer, has said for a while now that um, if we stay, if we report no more than 240 cases uh, a day for two weeks, we will be able to get off the list and stay there. So 240 is the goal. I mean, but if you look back, you'll see that there have been many a days recently where we have not been um, at or below that number, but we still have been lower <laughs> than we have been in the past. So the county says that's what allowed us to, to um, reduce our case rate. But if we want to, to really stay there with confidence, Dr. Wilma Wooten has said 240 or fewer new daily cases is what we need to stay at and hold there for two weeks. Now, Governor Newsom announced some hopeful news for the state during his COVID briefing yesterday. What did he report? So he focused a lot on the um, hospitalizations and, and those that are in ICUs for COVID. And we saw decreases um, about 19% with hospitalizations over the last two weeks and decreases of ICU admissions, I think about 16%. And so this is um, this is a really, really um, easy, easy number to track. And it's really, um, it, it really tell, gives us a better sampling of them cases, because as you mentioned, that can kind of fluctuate with testing. Um, so this is really, really a good indicator of how we're improving 
um, on, on reducing the spread of COVID by seeing these numbers go down. So he was very happy about that. And we've seen similar trends here in San Diego or hospitalizations, number of hospitalizations have, have fallen as well. And getting back to San Diego for sort of the full picture, what were the new numbers on deaths and outbreaks? So we're still seeing, you know, deaths um, are still, we're still seeing them reported and we're still seeing outbreaks. Now outbreaks, I can say that um, for a while we were doing well. And what San Diego wants us to stick to is no more than six community outbreaks reported in a week period. Well, we have been way above that for a long time. And so, you know, we reached 40 outbreaks reported in one week period. And then we were, we were coming down. We're still kind of coming down, but we're still pretty high. Like the county reported 26 community outbreaks um, were confirmed in the last seven days. So still very high, but a little bit better than we saw earlier. Deaths, we're still seeing people, um, we're still seeing reports of people of dying. Uh, there was, I believe, six or eight reported um, over a couple of days each day this week. We've seen large numbers, um, fewer numbers, um, but, you know, people are still dying from this. And a new testing site opened yesterday at the San Ysidro border. What is the county hoping to achieve with that new site? Right. So they're providing up to 200 uh, daily tests for people who are authorized to cross over from Mexico into the U.S. These are usually essential workers. And we know that hospitals in the South Bay have been overwhelmed with uh, patients, COVID patients, and had a high percentage of those that have recently traveled to Mexico. So we, this is an effort by the county to provide more resources at the border to just provide, um, provide help where, where the metrics are showing it's needed. I've been speaking with KPBS health reporter Taryn Mento, and Taryn, thank you. Thank you. The human toll of the pandemic goes beyond statistics and charts. For many families, their worlds have been completely devastated by loss. One local theater company is turning their memories and stories into original songs to honor and eulogize lives lost during the pandemic. Here's KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon-Evans with the story. Blind Spot Collective, a San Diego-based theater company, has made a name for themselves in recent years with inclusive, site-specific works, including being featured in the La Jolla Playhouse's Without Walls Festival. This summer, they've launched Refractions, which is a project that creates human anthems, original songs written to honor lives lost during the pandemic. The first song Blindspot produced honored the memory of Juliette Davis. Her son, Tavi McNeil, told Davis's story to songwriters Brian Barberin and Kendrick Dial, who wrote Mama's Gonna Work It Out. While the pandemic has sidelined Blindspot's operations in many ways, Artistic Director Blake McCarty said it has also created a sort of intersection of the values the company strives for. It challenges performing artists to really reimagine what it is theater can look like. They've also long been interested in telling true, first-person, documentary-style stories. Verbatim theater, or documentary theater, is a specific form of nonfiction drama and playwriting that involves conducting interviews and transforming them into script. During the pandemic, 
when families affected by losses or sickness become statistics, Blindspot wanted to put those skills to work and honor victims by telling their stories. Every piece of dialogue is something that is, it is real and authentic from an interview source. And so every character is based uh, specifically on a real person and their true and real experiences. Pulling from stories and interviews helps humanize and memorialize something bigger than just one person. Documentaries are not truth. They are still someone's perspective. The ability to actually like embrace someone's reality without making that reality sort of monolithic in any way. Shalina Hefner, one of the artists leading the project, said storytelling is critical while communities are struggling with grief, but it's a role that she and many other performers are missing right now with stages shuttered. At least for me, our job is to create empathy and it's to tell stories. Um, and a lot of us right now aren't doing that. In all of these numbers that we're flooded with on television and we're losing the, the individual in this moment. Yeah, we, you know, we see like 300 new cases yesterday and we think, oh, that's a lot, you know, and people get, I think that we're losing who those people are. The group pairs grieving families with songwriters and performers to produce original music with lyrics taken directly from the interviews and conversations with loved ones. I, I wish that you were here. I miss the sound of your voice. Every echo of your wisdom sings songs of your soul saving me from myself. I know you're still watching me. They first gather stories from families using one-on-one -on -one interviews. It's a way to get to know a person beyond the statistics, the things they loved, their catchphrases, and what the friends and family remember about them. They also ask what kind of music the person liked and the types of music the family listens to together. In the absence of public funerals, this process parallels the human need to eulogize their loved ones. When these songs are shared, they put a face and a story to the human toll of the pandemic. Tavi McNeil said his mother Juliet had raised him with music and loved music during her life. The song was exactly what it needed to be for him. That was KPBS arts editor Julia Dixon Evans. Blindspot Collective is still gathering stories from families who wish to honor loved ones. You can find out how to get involved at kpbs.org. KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air, Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air, and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980. With their fleet of trained professionals, Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 
Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com because we know how. I'm Mark Sauer with Maureen Cavanaugh, and you're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. The Biden-Harris Democratic ticket is set, but roughly 80 days out, the November 3rd election seems imperiled. The president today said he will block Democrats' request for aid to the Postal Service. Social media is besieged by foreign trolls, and COVID-19 fears cloud in-person voting. Joining me to examine this fraught election year is Richard Hassan, professor of law and political science at the University of California, Irvine, and author of Election Meltdown, Dirty Tricks, Distrust, and the Threat to American Democracy. Welcome to Midday Edition. It's great to be with you. President Trump said this morning on Fox News he'll block the Democrats' push for more Postal Service funding. Let's hear that. They want $25 billion, billion for the post office. Now, they need that money in order to have the post office work so it can take all of these millions and millions of ballots. Now, in the meantime, they aren't getting there. By the way, those are just two items. But if they don't get those two items, that means you can't have universal mail-in voting because they're not equipped to have it. So what's your reaction to this, Professor? In order to have a proper election in the middle of a pandemic, many people are going to want to vote by mail. And saying that you want to make it harder for people to vote by mail in the middle of a pandemic and doing so for political reasons is profoundly worrying and is just part of a pattern of the president making statements that are intended to make it harder to vote and to undermine people's confidence in the fairness of the election. Now, is there anything to Trump's claims that bad actors and foreign or domestic will counterfeit ballots and doctor ballots and steal ballots or commit other election crimes regarding mail-in voting? So I think that the amount of voter fraud in the United States is quite low. When election crimes do happen, they're more likely to happen using absentee ballots than in-person voting. Uh, But even so, the overall rate of uh, absentee ballot fraud is low. And by referring to absentee ballots, I'm talking about absentee and mail-in ballots, because in my use of the terms, they're really the same thing. And uh, most of these absentee ballot crimes or prosecutions were ones that would not affect the outcome of an election. I certainly think we could see isolated instances of ballots being tampered with, but to try to tamper with an election through absentee ballots on any wide scale would be easily detected. And so I don't think that it really presents a significant risk to the integrity of the election. And you posted a New York Times column on your election law blog this week about the blue shift What is that? And what's it uh, have to do with Trump tweeting that we must know the results on election night? So one of the concerns that I have is that given this shift to mail-in balloting, and especially given Trump's statements, which are discouraging Republicans from voting by mail and encouraging Democrats to do so, that we might be in a situation where you can imagine, say, a swing state like Pennsylvania or Wisconsin, Trump is ahead in the voting on election night because those are the ballots uh, that are going to be counted first are going to be those in-person ballots. It takes longer to process absentee ballots to make sure they're done correctly and and that uh, all the anti-fraud provisions are in place. So you can imagine a situation where Trump is ahead on election night. Then we get to 
uh, maybe a week or even longer later when all the ballots are counted and Biden has won the election. In the meantime, Trump could claim victory based on the election night results and try to make claims as he has in the past that any ballots counted after election day are somehow fraudulent. These are not valid claims. We never have election results uh, happen uh, immediately. There are projections of what's going to happen. In California, it takes weeks to count the ballots. And one of the things that we see as ballot, even before Trump started making these comments, is that because Democrats tend to vote later, uh, the ballots that are counted later have more Democratic votes in them. That's why we saw seven congressional races in Southern California in the 2018 elections start with election night leads for Republican congressional candidates. And in all of those races, Democrats were ultimately declared the winner as all of the ballots were counted. That's what the blue shift is. It's the fact that not only can we potentially expect the final election results to be different from the election night results, they're much more likely to favor Democrats. There's nothing nefarious about it. It's just the voting patterns of how people tend to vote and what we see in terms of election results. What about foreign interference this time around? We've, we followed the uh, Mueller report, a detailed analysis of Russian interference in 2016. Intelligence agents say it's happening again. There's reports of interference from China against Trump. How seriously are you taking these threats? Well, there were different kinds of interference in 2016. One kind of interference is uh, misinformation or attempts to stir up uh, social trouble. We saw the Russians do that. I think that is troubling. Uh, although I do think that the platforms like Facebook and uh, Twitter are, are taking some steps to try to root out what they call coordinated inauthentic behavior, this idea of uh, you know using bots or otherwise sending out messages that don't really re reflect real people, but instead a kind of political operation. I'm more concerned about other kinds of interference. Remember in 2016, we saw the stealing uh, and leaking of Democratic Party documents. So we might see that happen again. Uh, you know, we don't know who's stealing what documents and what might be released. And also what we saw in 2016 was the Russian government probing election registration databases in all 50 states, trying to uh, show, I think, that they had some ability to access those databases. Uh, no information was changed in terms of the results of the 2016 election, but I think it was an attempt to try to undermine people's confidence in the process. Looking forward to the 2020 election, one of the nightmares that I spin out in uh, election meltdown is the potential of a power grid hack in a democratic city like Detroit in a swing state like Michigan. We don't have good procedures in place if there is that kind of disruption. And I think COVID is on everyone's mind, but I think we can't put aside the potential for there to be problems like foreign uh, interference, uh, cyber attacks, things like that also occurring as we get closer to the election. And much is being said about voter suppression, like drastic cuts in the number of polling places in certain cities. Uh, do you worry about that? So I was already worried about the election before COVID hit. Now, of course, one of the reasons we're seeing uh, polling place closures is that it's very hard to staff polling places, especially when you rely on older Americans who are most susceptible to the virus. All kinds of reasons to worry that the election, you know, is one that's not going to look like our typical election. I think we need to make sure that there are 
safe ways to vote both in person and by mail, especially with these concerns over vote by mail, we may end up seeing more people voting in person. And with all the kinds of polling place closures and the procedures that need to be put in place, uh, like social distancing and cleaning of uh, voting equipment that need to happen because of the pandemic, I think we should anticipate the potential for long lines, which is, was always a potential in places, but I think we might see it in more places. Uh, that's why in-person early voting might be a great option for some people who neither trust the mail nor are, are willing to wait till election day to see what those lines are going to look like. Well, how great a threat is all this to the election? Uh, put your, your uh, crystal ball cap on. Uh, what are you fearing? What keeps you up at night? Uh, what might happen on November 3rd? Well, everything we've talked about uh, is the kind of stuff that keeps me up at night from potential cyber attacks to uh, lack of opportunities for safe in-person voting uh, to uh, the president seeking to undermine the fairness and legitimacy of the election. I think what is most likely to lead to what would be considered by many to be a successful election is if the election is not particularly close. Because if the election is very close, then you know there's going to be fighting lawsuits, potentially uh, street protests over arcane rules for how ballots are cast and counted. And that's something that really we're not well equipped for. 20 years after the Florida debacle, which led to the Supreme Court's decision in Bush versus Gore, we're still not prepared to deal with these kinds of uh, election troubles. And of course, it's much worse now with increased polarization and the rise of social media. Well, the media is watching, the voters are watching, the whole world will be watching. Lots to cover here between now and November 3rd. I've been speaking with political science and law professor Richard Hassan of the University of California, Irvine, and author of Election Meltdown, Dirty Tricks, Distrust, and the Threat to American Democracy. Thanks very much. Thank you for the opportunity. A number of military families have been left in limbo as they wait to move to new bases. The Navy imposed a stop movement this spring because of the pandemic. Now it's trying to restart travel, but not everybody is being allowed to move yet. KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh reports. Uh, this is our home for the moment. Adaptability is part of Navy life for Kylie McFerrin and her family. That's meant living in an RV at a campground in the Laguna Mountains. It's about an hour away from the ocean where her husband continues to work at Naval Base Coronado in San Diego County. It has been difficult. There have been a lot of times where you have to tell yourself, this is only temporary. <laughs> This is not forever. Um, you know, tomorrow's a new day. The McFerrins sold their home when her husband received orders transferring him to Maryland. They were forced to move out in July, but by then, the Navy had put his move on hold. With two young kids and no place to live, their best option was to buy an RV and search for campgrounds. Finding more permanent housing in an RV is a little challenging. A lot of places require a membership. Um, some places um, are just booked because most people make these plans months and years in advance. And we are trying to do it last minute. Her family is one of thousands caught up in the military's stop movement order, which went into effect in March. In July, the Pentagon began loosening restrictions. About 40% of the 230 U.S. military installations worldwide have reopened because they met requirements like having fewer COVID-19 cases for at least 14 days. Assistant Commander of Navy Personnel Captain Derek Trank says bases also needed to be operating closer to normal. There can't be a local travel restriction. Uh, they have to have essential services like child care. 
But San Diego naval bases are still on the red list, though the Navy is making exceptions. We have a waiver process. We were able to uh, get sailors moved because they had a hardship or because they were essential to the mission of the new command. Waivers have helped dramatically clear the Navy's backlog. The Navy originally expected it would take until sometime next year to move the nearly 24,000 waiting families. Now it expects to have the rest of those families at their new bases by November. The number of cases of coronavirus in the military has plateaued in the last week or so, though coronavirus cases had been surging through July, even as the Navy was pushing to get more sailors moving. Trank says the Navy is convinced it's reopening safely. Because we are taking those steps to keep our people safe, uh, I believe it is allowing us to make these moves, whereas before, um, everybody stopped moving really was the right answer because we knew so little. Still, determining why one base is open to travel and another base is closed can be confusing for military families. Early in the pandemic, the Pentagon stopped listing COVID cases by base. In San Diego County, along with the Navy, the Marines' West Coast boot camp is still red flagged. But the Marines are free to transfer in and out of Camp Pendleton. Navy spouse Kelly Kopeck is finally on her way to the East Coast from San Diego. She spoke from the road. Nobody seemed to really know what information to give us or what advice to give us or that type of thing. And it was a lot of hurry up and wait. Just like the McFerrins, the Kopecks also brought an RV when they needed a place to live after they sold their house in San Diego. Now they are finally traveling cross-country to Virginia with their seven-month-old with the help of a Navy waiver. Something that would be incredibly helpful and beneficial to a future pandemic or other extreme situation, maybe to allow for case management in this. That would give families a point of contact, like when they have sailors deployed. The COPEX will be required to self-isolate for 14 days at their new base. The RV will make that easier while other families wait for their turn to hit the road. Steve Walsh, KPBS News. KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air, Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980 with their fleet of trained professionals. Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com. Because we know how. I'm Mark Sauer with Maureen Cavanaugh. You're listening to Midday Edition on KPBS. The Oceanside International Film Festival had big plans for its 10-year anniversary, but they had to be scrapped as the festival was forced to move online. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with the festival's managing director, Lou Niles, about what to expect. Lou, the Oceanside International Film Festival has a anniversary, a milestone to celebrate this year. You are turning 10, but... Address some of the complications you've had with this particular year and the coronavirus. Yeah, absolutely. We were really excited to celebrate our 
10-year celebration and we're even launching a sustainability and uh, social consciousness related initiative which would have been very timely so we've had to go virtual explore different platforms so we're lucky to have found one and we're just about ready to go we had to make the decision probably about maybe two and a half three weeks ago so we are just scrambling to get everything loaded into the platform and get it ready uh, to let, to deliver these great films uh, to the public so i have to confess the first film of yours that i went to watch was honor and the opening kind of a drone shot of this gorgeous landscape and i think being in quarantine and seeing that suddenly i felt like man i really want to go outside or I want to go to a cinema and see these images on a massive screen. So I, I, a number of your films do have this really great sense of the expanse of the outdoors, which is quite enjoyable to be watching from inside quarantine. So talk a little bit about those choices. Yeah, we were lucky. I mean, every year it, we're really kind of at the whim of who submits. Um, so, uh, you know, the programming team, uh, Sterling Anno and Carly Starbrillo Niles, they, they really go through that what do we have? And we really like to have themed blocks. So we have these theme blocks of films that, that may not be just documentaries or just love stories. You know, they, there might be a mix in there and they're tied together somehow uh, by another uh, thread that's moving through the stories. Um, and we have some really beautiful film so hopefully it'll, it'll be that kind of inspiring thing where you're trapped inside and you can live vicariously through these films and, and not be like i wish i could get out there um so just some beautiful films that are in our sustainable block or even in our uh, lineup block which is mostly about surf and skate there's even some kind of social justice stories that'll take you on, on a trip photojournalist takes a trip from central america on the train trying to come to America, follow, following their children, trying to immigrate and, and get to America to be with their family. Then I learned that, you know, I, I can hide behind the camera only so long before I can't see through the viewfinder because tears are coming down my eyes. But if I couldn't stand to do that, I would do something else. I, I shouldn't do it. It's not for everybody. The goal here is to teach viewers this is what happened behind the scenes. The struggle of people in failing countries. It's just some amazing, uh, you know, it's hard not to, to pick those beautiful films that have been done so well on independent budget. You talk about these theme blocks and sustainability is one of them. What are some of the other categories you have? We've got eight different themed film blocks, as we call them, and there'll be four or five films in each blocks. Most of them are short, but we have, like I mentioned, the lineup, which has a number of uh, surf-related films. The one film from Iceland that you talked about, and it's not really a, a surf film, but there's surfing in the thread. It's more about a man and his daughter and his love for surfing. Then in our sustainable block, we've got a lot of beautiful cinematic films, as well as films about the environment and sustainability. Coming of age and dark, kind of a, a dark comedy block. It, it features a short film that actually comes from uh, San Diego. Uh, Dick Sean died 
on stage at the La Jolla Playhouse. And for a long time during the performance, people thought it was part of the act and it wasn't. Um, so there's a short film about that. Golden Hour is a set of films that are, uh, the thread there is the, the people in the films are in their kind of the older age group. Change is a block of films uh, just having change in life. There's some really interesting socially conscious films there, a great uh, independent short from Oceanside, actually. Art House is another block with some, some of my favorites in it. And uh, then Culture has got some beautiful photos. Really, one of the special ones in the Culture block is uh, Isolated in Stromboli. Those are the eight blocks, and then we have four separate features. Are you particularly excited about any particular block or film that you're going to be highlighting? That is really a tough one. We should probably answer the same, that question the same each year, that, oh, I really love these films. It's really great. But I'm really excited about Top Rack. Um, is an amazing film. And then one of my most favorites is Eat the Rainbow, which is uh, uh, kind of a musical short, but a very deep, social issue that they approach it in such an interesting creative way so i guess we'll become some sort of a neighborhood melting pot then yes but instead of a melting pot think of it as a salad bowl with many different ingredients of all colors mixed together each with its own unique flavor and deliciousness all right well i want to thank you very much for taking some time to talk about your 10th anniversary yes thank you so much for having us Take a look inside your soul Is it black or a rainbow? Cauliflower, golden beans, purple cabbage, deli meats Onion, olive, okra, peas, carrots, radish, yellow cheese Fuji, apples, Macintosh, pomegranate, acorn squash Watermelon, prickly pear, avocado, everywhere That was Beth Accomando speaking with Oceanside International Film Festival's Lou Niles. You can find complete program information at osidefilm.org. The KPBS Summer Music Series continues this week with a band that's been a longtime San Diego favorite. In the early 1990s, acid jazz pioneers the Grey Boy All-Stars put San Diego on the map with their funky brand of West Coast Boogaloo. Since then, their unique style has given rise to many new artists following in their footsteps. The Grey Boy All-Stars just released their first album in seven years. KPBS's Allison St. John interviewed the band, and the conversation started with some music. Here's the title track of the Grey Boy All-Stars' new album, Como de All-Stars. That was the Grey Boy All-Stars with Como de All-Stars, the title track from their new album. The Grey Boy All-Stars are Carl Denson on sax and flute and vocals too, I believe, Robert Walter on keys, Elgin Park guitar, Chris Stilwell bass, and Aaron Redfield on drums. And with us now, we have Carl, Robert, and Elgin. Thank you so much for joining us on Midday Edition. Hi. Thanks for having us. Hi. 
Hi there. So now the song we just heard, Come de All Stars, is, is great. But unlike a lot of your songs, it has vocals. Tell us what the song's about. This is Elgin. And um, yeah, I wrote the lyrics and Carl sang it beautifully. And we sang it sort of as a group vocal. You know, we just wanted to make something that, that had sort of like a positive message, I think. Um, I think the overall feeling for the record was trying to create something positive that people could kind of have a good time too, but also it was our responsibility to contribute something that had some politically minded content appropriate for our times that we're living in and uh, not just kind of sit on the sidelines and just watch the thing go down in flames. So uh, just trying to, you know, let people know they have power to change their lives and get together and make a positive change. I think it, it really speaks to the uh, the idea of everybody getting out there and voting for one thing. We released it and I heard it the first time I thought this is a great get out and vote single. So that made yeah. me happy. So let's go back to your roots a little bit. What what has influenced the Grey Boy All-Star sound? Uh, this is Carl. I met DJ Grey Boy back in 1992. He came to a show that I was doing in Orange County California. And um, through a friend of mine, I met him through a friend and he was doing his DJ thing and he wanted some live instruments. I think the coolest thing about it was when we met, we started talking about music and the word boogaloo came out of both of our mouths almost simultaneously. So that kind of sealed the deal for he and I. And then, you know, a year later after we had done, we had done a couple of recordings together I walked into a garage and Robert and Mike were there. Where were you guys at that point um, musically in terms of the whole soul jazz boogaloo thing? I was, I was just getting turned on to it. So I, I loved like the meters and James Brown and, and I had a Ramsey Lewis record and a Herbie Hancock record, but I didn't have those like prestige and blue, Lou Donaldson, Rusty Bryant, you know, boogaloo Joe Jones, all that stuff kind of came from, Gray's DJ Gray Boy's like mixtape you made for us, yeah. right? And I was like, oh my god, what is this music and where has this been all my life? Because it did, it had all the things I liked about funk music, the tones and the and how it was felt physical, but it also had all this great improvisation and and I just thought that was such a cool combination. And then after that, I got obsessed with it and I would try and find all the original records that he was giving us and find out who played on those and kind of follow it down the rabbit hole of that whole style. Yeah, I, I think this is Elgin. Late 80s and, um, and early 90s, I was living in San Francisco and sort of one of the first places that the sort of resurgence of soul jazz, rare groove stuff was happening in San Francisco with a, a record store called Groove Merchant up there in the Lower Haight. And they used to have these, they used to have these DJ nights up there. Um, I think maybe even before it was going on in San Diego, which was at Nikki's Barbecue Pit. So I'd go there and it would be a great like mix of diverse mix of people from the lower hate, like projects in lower hate all the way up through like, you know, hippies and, you know, just like a really cool, interesting group of people. And it was the meters and all these, you know, sort of instrumental tracks that were super funky, kind of like I was always like, well, because I'd always heard of James Brown, but now it was sort of the meters and that kind of thing. And then when I met Gray, like through a friend of ours um, down in San Diego, and he turned me on to like, you know, Grant Green, Boogaloo, Joe Jones, 
um, you know, more of, you know, maybe some West Montgomery, although these other guys were like blue, basically like blues guitar players sort of playing a kind of a common a mix of like almost like country music and funk music, you know, and blues. And so that for me was a great entry point because I wasn't really a jazz guitar player and I still don't really consider myself a jazz guitar player. So it was sort of a great entry into playing great dance music, you know, which I had never done before. Yeah, so you sort of started in the, the, the classic, sort of in the garage starting point. How, how, do you, how do you describe your sound? I like the term West Coast Boogaloo, which is the name of our first record. And I really think that, you know, that identifies us to, to me, like what we really are, because we're like this, we, we used to always go out and tour um, at the beginning of the band and, you know, the whole acid jazz thing was happening. But we were really the only ones doing what we did. And it was this, this like um, purity of sticking to, the, to this kind of um, jazzier format where we didn't get, we didn't really get lost into the like trying to be a dance band or trying to be a funk band or trying to be something else. We were always kind of like, let's be a jazz band that people dance to. And, and I really yeah. feel like that created the, the term West Coast Boogaloo and uh, and that's pretty much what we still are. Yeah, I mean, I think throughout throughout the early days of our band, and I think all of us are slightly like have a sort of a punk rock spirit too. Like neither none of us wanted to belong to anything ever, and and I still don't think we do. You know, it's like we really weren't part of the acid jazz scene, and we weren't when we're and we're in as much as Carl would like to think of us as a jazz band we're not really a jazz band and we're not really a rock band and we're not really I mean we're a lot of we're not really a lot of things but the one thing we are is a boogaloo band so in in a very in a very simple sense of the word you just listen to the records Grant Green live well, you know, you know, uh, Joe Jones, Melvin Sparks, Reuben Wilson, you listen to these records. That's what we are. We're not, we're not really trying to be part of any contemporary moment. And I'm not, I'm not anyway, I'm, I'm, we're just five guys playing this style of music period. That's how we've lasted. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I thought it was going to last like three days. That's why I changed my name. <laughs> like well at the end of the week i'll just go back to my name 25 years later here we are elgin park yeah <laughs> but it is kind of black american music genre that you've taken and molded into your own creative form how, how do you how do you say that you sort of did that to 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 develop into your your own version of something that you all loved to me this is robert one of the things that happened is we uh, to, at least from my, where I'm at, I was starting as really trying to be faithful to that and really learn that the music. I heard those records and I was like, this is so cool. I want to kind of figure out how to do this. So at the beginning, it was a, to me, it was like a tribute to these things and maybe trying to shine some light on this music that was less popular. But by the act of doing it for so long and, and so many shows and playing on the road, I feel like we've internalized that and now we, we can really speak that language in an authentic way that's not imitative, you know, but it, it took some time and like over the years, we've all gotten better at it, I think. Talk to me about the San Diego music scene back in the early 90s and how the Grey Boy All-Stars got started. 
if I'm not mistaken, DJ Grayboy already had um, Wednesday nights going at a place called the Green Circle Bar yeah. in downtown San Diego. But there wasn't really a scene for this particular kind of thing, except for Gray had this night on Wednesdays. And we started playing. He would play before us. We'd play a set. He'd play in between. We'd play a set, and then he'd play after. And it just kind of snowballed from there. We started playing, taking little trips out to San Francisco, and we went to Europe a couple of times. And and it kind of organically grew into a band. And, and at one point in San Diego, we literally could work seven nights a week playing this music. It was, it was, a, <laughs> that's right. It's amazing. A period that we actually just played around town in San Diego all the time. It was amazing. That was Soul Dream from the Grey Boy All-Stars 1994 album, West Coast Boogaloo. So now, it's been seven years since your last album. Where did the idea of this new album come from, and what made you get the band back together again? <laughs> we, never, we never stopped playing together. That's, that's the, the beauty of this whole process. We were in Houston, and we had a gig that was supposed to be out, outdoors, and there was a rainstorm, so the the thing was canceled for rain. Um, and we had all been thinking it's time to write some new music. And luckily we were, you know, we had a night off all of a sudden. So we decided to rent a little studio and start writing music. And we wrote about half the album in that, that one night off. Um, you know, we could have just sat around the hotel, but we were like, might as well just play. And, um, and it came together really fast. And I think it, that's part of the charm of this album is that we did it so quickly and it, nothing's too overconsidered and it it just felt like we wanted some music to, that we could play live to freshen up the set list and that's kind of what we made we just made some music that we wanted to play well it's a good thing we've got your new album the gray boy all-stars new album como de all-stars which is out now carl denson robert walter and elgin park of the gray boy all-stars thanks so much for stopping by thanks for having us thank you thank you That was Allison St. John speaking with the members of the Grey Boy All-Stars. The band just released its new album, Como de All-Stars, and a reissue of their 1994 album, West Coast Boogaloo.
KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980. With their fleet of trained professionals, Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com. Because we know how.